Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 12 of the podcast, the topic is the future of nuclear waste. Our guest is Elizabeth Müller, CEO and co-founder of Deep Isolation, the nuclear waste disposal startup. Liz, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Tron. How about you? I am doing fine. I am looking forward to this conversation. Liz, I thought I, I would start with a little bit about your background and here. Um, I was very curious when I uh, was rereading your bio and uh, I had realized because, you know, we know each other from way back when, and I knew you from your OECD day. So that was uh, clear to me. Uh, and I get the sense that you are quite a, uh, an environmentalist and you uh, founded uh, executive director of Berkeley Earth. Um, obviously have a background from, uh, you know, a technical background from, in math from San Diego, I see. And you went to business school uh, outside of Paris. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yeah, you've done a lot of interesting things in your uh, in your career, and now uh, you have moved into doing a business with your father. Yes, I have. That that was actually not just for deep isolation. So we also worked together for Berkeley Earth, our nonprofit. So that was basically where I wanted to start. Um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about your father because it is an interesting relationship that you guys have. Mm. First of all, I mean, just at the surface of it, I was just looking a little bit at his, his bio himself. So he's an emeritus uh, professor of physics at, at Berkeley, right? Yes. And here's what I read about him. Two of Miller's protégés, uh, his grad student, Saul Perlmutter, and his postdoctoral fellow, George Smoot, went on to win Nobel Prizes for the completion of projects funded uh, founded and initially run by, by Miller. I mean, that is by any account an astounding legacy. And yes. my question then is, how was he to grow up with and what were the breakfast conversations? Uh, well, you could imagine a lot of physics, a lot of science, um, perhaps more surprisingly, a lot of writing. Um, he really believed in a breadth of education, um, which I think has benefited me and also him and our business relationship um, in that in addition to being able to go really deep into something, we like to combine things that maybe other people have never thought to combine. And, and that's one of the things we're doing now with deep isolation, um, nuclear waste disposals. We're combining the nuclear industry with drilling technologies that have become so perfected over the past 20 years. But um, growing up, I, I would say we had a lot of fun. Um, I was never a scientist. Um, I was good at math, which is why I majored in math. But I never had a scientific inclination in the way that he did. Um, I always liked um, building things, I guess, is perhaps the best way to describe it. Um, and I like thinking creatively and, and strategy. And so it's really unique. And I think it's one of the ways, one of the reasons we work so well together is that we have brought together his fantastic scientific understanding with my ability to build and grow an organization that can really drive change. 
that's fantastic. Well, building a business though with your father is different from uh, thinking with him and getting inspired uh, by him. What is it? It's just funny because I'm just off a recording with another entrepreneur who has this exact type of relationship. He's uh, founded a business with his father. And so Mm. just coming off of this conversation, it's a very um, powerful thing to, to be doing you know, business for one thing, but just be working so closely with someone that you have known for so long. Uh, were you, would you say that you have, um, d- do you have special advantages just because you have that kind of relationship? But there will must also be some drawbacks, but I'm just thinking so much, especially what you said about combining very complicated areas. You must have so many occasions to kind of just have offhand conversations where, where you can just at the moment where you have the thought, you can actually connect it yeah. to, to the business. Yeah, I, I think that um, you know, the fundamental trust that exists is so deep. And, you know, our interests are so much more aligned than they would be for typical founders. Um, And that is tremendously helpful. Um, And, you know, the trust that we have and our ability to understand each other um, is certainly helpful for for growing a company. I'm I'm just fascinated by that. If you were to think about just one thing more in your background that has taught you sort of the most, because I, I listed a few things that you have done, you've done many, many more things. If you look back at where, you know, and you think about where you are now with commercializing these, uh, this venture that combines two very disparate areas in, in principle, what would you say has taught you the most? I mean, I met you around, around about when you were involved in e-government at the OECD, but there are so many other things. What would you attribute, uh, kind of be, becoming much the most important influence on, on what you then kind of consider this is what I want to do and this is where I want to kind of leave my my legacy and build, build things. Yeah, I, w- I would say two things. Um, one was sort of coming out of my OECD days. Um, I went to go work for a UK consulting company that did consulting on high tech government programs. So similar to the work I'd been doing at the OECD, but in particular, thinking about how do you design a government program in a way that will actually be effective, um, that it actually is responding to needs of citizens and stakeholders rather than being driven from somebody inside government who may or may not understand those needs. Um, and this way of thinking about things and, and, and the approach towards stakeholder engagement is something that I learned a lot about. And now when we're starting to think about nuclear waste disposal and the sort of failures that this industry has seen, um, most of the failures are in the, the realm of stakeholder engagement and working with communities and working with environmental groups. So I think that experience early on was really important in in shaping um, my career. Um, The other one that I want to mention is my work at Berkeley Earth. So I am, as you noted, fundamentally an environmentalist at heart. Um, I think that it is important to solve and, and to tackle big environmental problems. And we shouldn't steer away from the hard stuff. And in, in fact, we, that's what we need to steer towards. And at 
clear if we, we focus mostly on, mostly on global warming um, and air pollution. But I think that the nuclear waste problem is another big unsolved problem, um, but one that I think we really can solve if, if we work together and, and focus on it. Well, both of those observations, I think, are, are so profound. I mean, as, as you know, we share this background uh, professionally and, and this interest in, in e-government. And I think uh, digital government, whatever you want to call it, th- there is this sense, I think, you know, early on, uh, and both of us, I guess, we're, we're working in that paradigm for a while, that, you know, this is kind of all about economic savings and efficiencies, which is obviously at the OECD and also at the EU. Those are very big priorities. But but there is something much more fundamental when you apply government uh, and, and technology into government. And, and it just, beyond just having to work and having to do its job, there's, of course, the extreme fallout if it doesn't work. And that's kind of what I wanted to bring along into our discussion about nuclear waste. And then secondly, what you said about uh stakeholder management and the importance of embedding, uh, if you wish, the approach both business-wise and in terms of what the technology ultimately is going to do to communities to embed that deeply. So I, I wanted to use that maybe as a little segue into nuclear waste, which is you know what you're into right now. First off, what do you understand by that term, nuclear waste? Is that a fairly clear uh, and, you know, established notion that everybody should understand what is. I mean, it's essentially something uh, which remains from the process of generating nuclear energy. And it's th- th- so it encompasses all of the essentially problems surrounding the waste product, the chemical waste product from, from the nuclear reactor. Is that it? Yeah, so you, you raise a good point, and there are many different types of nuclear waste. Um, there is the spent nuclear fuel itself. So this is the fuel that went into a reactor, and then after it's been used, it is it is considered a, a waste product. It could potentially be recycled, um, but if it is or if it isn't, it is still ultimately going to need a disposal solution. Um, there are other types of nuclear waste. Um, there is military waste. There is research waste. There is medical waste. Um, and there are various types of low-level waste. These are wastes that are not considered as dangerous as either spent nuclear fuel or waste that is classified as high-level waste. Um, Low-level waste has been and is disposed of um, regularly in many places around the world. So that is not the problem that we are tackling. Um, We are tackling the spent nuclear fuel and the high-level waste that doesn't have a solution for disposal. I'm glad we covered that. I, I do want to hopefully uh, ask you a, a couple of questions later about water because I know water is, uh, and certainly it's such an interest of of mine. But definitely, it it enters into the debate in in several of the incidents with with nuclear mm. uh, accidents, you know, throughout history. So so let's get to that in a second. But but the solution you are providing is purely for the high grade waste. The fuel, the direct fuel waste. Is that yes. am I right? Yes, it's the high uh, high level nuclear waste and also the spent nuclear fuel. So I grew up in Norway and Sellafield, uh, which was built on the Cumbria coast in Northwest England, was kind of part of my upbringing. Um, the nuclear waste site there in the UK was a big fear uh, in the, you know, in, throughout my childhood, really, um, as was Chernobyl. And I remember, so Chernobyl, when was that? 1986? Um, I'll check that. I remember, in fact, you know, in, 
in uh, a grade school, you know, learning about Becquerel fallout and radioactivity, uh, you know, throughout elementary school, and we couldn't eat blueberries for years. So this is, you know, at least for every Norwegian that grew up in that particular age, um, you know, it's a very personal and, and, and it's a discussion that I, that that's close to my heart. Are those the kinds of sites that you act on or are you mostly talking about uh, existing waste that's being generated now? So um, all of that waste is going to need disposal. Um, so Chernobyl waste, Fukushima waste, waste from uh, military activities um, will need um disposal, as will waste from commercial nuclear power generation. So we are really looking at solutions for all of those types of waste that don't currently have a place to go. Got it. So let's talk about Japan and the Fukushima accident for, for a little bit. So following this major earthquake, uh, there was this tsunami that we now all remember, which disabled the power supply and the cooling of three of their reactors. And so this was back in 2011. And all three cores, in fact, largely melted down the first three days. Now, the Tokyo Electric Power, the TEPCO, uh, have struggled to deal with uh, you know, a number of things, you know, the buildup of groundwater, which gets contaminated, and then the actual reactors themselves that were mm, kind of melting down. What are the options you have when you are dealing with an acute situation, I'm, I'm assuming you, you are mostly talking about waste that is generating during the industrial process, correct, of, of, of producing it. So what I'm talking about now after a fallout is a whole other story, right? The techniques you have to kind of go into a active site are maybe slightly different than, than your technology is set up to do, or am I misunderstanding this? No, that's correct. So there, there's emergency situation management, um, right. which is necessary when something like that happens. And then there's the long-term issue of what are you going to do with the waste that you recover from, from such a site? And that's where we right. can help. Got it. It's such a evocative technology and people have very very strong opinions about nuclear some people rightfully so see it as a very powerful energy source uh, others sort of think of it as the worst thing that humanity ever created what are the kinds of things that you bring into that discussion when you uh you know let's just say my audience the listeners i think they're they're probably all kinds of opinions within the scientific community, within the founder community, and, and among corporate executives. Those are sort of my uh, main, main listeners. I, I'm sure that people have all kinds of opinions, but this is also a topic where, um, unless you really, really have read up on it, it is a still a specialty field, yet with a lot of opinion. That is toxic in a different way, right? It's, it's literally toxic. It's a very, very difficult, difficult situation. How, when you talk about what you do, do you find that the person on the street really understands what you're trying to do? Um, I've been surprised in how much agreement there really is when it comes to nuclear waste. There may be lots of disagreement when it comes to nuclear power and whether nuclear power is something that we should continue to pursue or not. 
Um, but when it comes to nuclear waste, there is a international consensus that First of all, it needs a disposal solution. So pretty much anyone on the street, um, a surprising number of people know that we still need a solution for nuclear waste and that we don't currently have one, first of all. Right. Second right. of all, as you start getting into um, people who know a little bit more about the specifics of the issue, um, there really is an international consensus that the right solution for nuclear waste is what they call deep geologic disposal. So we shouldn't be sending it to the moon. We shouldn't be dumping it in the ocean. Um, we need deep geologic disposal. It needs to be deep underground. Um, and that really is the safest place for it to be. Um, if you were to ask what the city you lives in, live in is going to look like in a million years. And that's the time frame that we have to think about when we're thinking about how long nuclear waste can potentially be dangerous. Um, we have no idea. I have no idea what the Bay Area is going to look like a million years from now. But if you go deep down underground, um, one or two or four kilometers deep, um, we know it's going to look very similar in a million years to how it does today. And that means that it's a good place to put something that is potentially dangerous for a very long time. I, I now suddenly understand why I invited you on this show, because it's called, you know, our show is called Futurized and it's about the future. And usually we define the discussion as, you know, what's happening in the next decade. So I love the time frame <laughs> of a million years. It, it puts things into kind of a slight perspective. But so, so given that time frame, though, the um, and, and knowing that nuclear power, I guess, contributes something around ten percent of the world's power needs. I don't know if you have better data than than, than me, but um, it's a massive market. I I believe you were quoting on your websites that nuclear waste disposal, in and of itself, is potentially a five hundred billion market worldwide. Was that a projection or is that based on the current capacity that's built or, or planned, I guess, by, by regulatory authorities? So that is based on the existing nuclear waste today and what governments around the world have either budgeted for or expect that they will have to budget for in order to eventually dispose of that waste that exists today. I mean, that's an enormous market. How, how many contenders are there right now for, for, for that money? Well, up until very recently, um, it's really been governments who have had the sole responsibility for, for dealing with the problem. Um, and they might work with private companies, um, but this is not really a market in the sense of the traditional term. Um, so there's only really up until very recently been one approach that governments have considered when it comes to disposing of waste. And that's what they call a mined repository. And this is where you physically mine out a lot of space underground, and then you can bring trucks down, people down in order to put the waste into um, a deep geologic um, space underground. Um, right. Some of the problems with that is that, um, and, 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 some of the reasons that there hasn't been more success with this approach um, is, first of all, um, it's very expensive. 
very, yeah. very expensive. Um, so in the U.S., uh, Yucca Mountain um, is expected to cost um, $100 billion um, or more. So that's a billion with a B. Um, for countries that don't have as much waste as the United States does, um, spending the sort of upfront costs in order to build a mined repository um, yeah. can be unachievable. Um, and for even those countries that can afford to spend a lot of money on a mined repository, you have another challenge that that is because it is so expensive, you can really only do at most one per country or one per region. You can't have a model in which this is more equitably distributed. Um, and that means you have to pick a location that is going to be essentially the nuclear waste dump for the whole country or the whole region. Wow. And that's a hard sell for many people. Um, and, yeah. and then you also have to deal with transportation, which is, which is equally controversial. So you are a bit of a first in that sense, because you're, you, well, arguably your, your solution is safe and permanent deep geologic repositories. How does that, even work? What is it that you have figured out? I, I, I hear that it's a combination of drilling. Am I very, very wrong in comparing the method that you are using to how they uh, are planning to store carbon? So the carbon capture and storage discussion. I mean, yeah. that also depends on deep drilling, but I, I'm guessing in different sediments and in different, maybe maybe the, the, in, the details of it work very differently, but it's also a form of underground storage. Yes. So, so fundamentally, the, the, what we are doing is we are using directional drilling to enable us to reach these deep rock formations, um, deep underground, but without needing to put humans underground. So we're talking right. about boreholes or drill holes that are typically 18 inches in diameter um, compared mm -hmm. to 18 feet for a tunnel that would that would otherwise be required. Um, you don't have humans underground. It makes it much safer, significantly safer, um, as well as being very significantly less expensive. You are physically removing less rock. Um, now, the difference, so since in some ways this is very similar to what is being done with carbon sequestration, um, one of the differences is that um, in carbon sequestration, you are not just using the the, the the volume of the space that you drilled out. You're actually trying to push it into various different parts of the rock formation. Um, whereas when we're talking about disposing of nuclear waste, we are just putting capsules into these holes that have been drilled and we are not seeking to disturb the rock in the surrounding area. Yeah, I could see why uh, CCS is a much more complicated picture for for that and other reasons. Uh, but I just wanted to point out that the the basic uh, principle of storing it underground and the fact that you have to do some amount of drilling, you know, that would seem yeah. to be slightly similar. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm curious. So when you, how did you get the idea, and who got this idea of combining advanced drilling? With nuclear waste, what, what was the impetus for? You know, here we have an idea here. Let's let's test this out. H how did this come about? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question, and this is really um, 
Rich, this is my dad. So he had the initial aha moment um, that that led us to to the idea that then became the company. Um, and that was we were we were listening in on some discussions of nuclear, and we were familiar with the nuclear waste problem, and, but not familiar enough to know the history and some of the things that had already been tried. Um, in passing, somebody mentioned um, deep borehole disposal of nuclear waste. Now, some of the work that we had done previously through our nonprofit Berkeley Earth um, had also involved looking at natural gas. So we were familiar with horizontal drilling. Um, we we know um, what is being done commonly around around the world today, but especially in in North America. And so when somebody mentioned borehole disposal of nuclear waste, um, Rich really had an aha moment. Well, yes, of course, that is such a, a fantastic way to dispose of nuclear waste. Um, he later found out that they were not thinking about directional drilling. Um, in, in particular, at the time, we were thinking about directional drilling into sedimentary basins, which is very similar to what is done um, in the oil and gas industry. Um, they were talking about drilling horizontal, sorry, drilling purely vertical drill holes um, into crystalline basement rock. Um, that's an idea that's actually been around um, since the 1980s and has had some traction. Um, but we see that there are really tremendous advantages by going horizontally instead of vertically um, that wouldn't have been possible back in the 1980s. But the, the way that we have now perfected um, directional drilling uh, makes it an, a new option today. All right. So directional drilling, I, I noted one thing. You call your father by his uh, short first name. Is that something you've gotten used to doing? I, it I took found that a kind while, of... but yes, I've been doing that now for, gosh, probably 15 years or so. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you don't want to say, oh, my dad thinks this in a business context? Yeah, it, it's more of a professional relationship. Um, and we do have a professional relationship. So so usually now I actually call him either Rich when we're working together or when we're around my kids, he's grandpa. So so usually it's one of those two. Yeah, no, I could, but I can understand that because, I mean, I think we were talking about family businesses. They, I mean, it's just... Uh, you don't actually need the reminder to everyone else in the room uh, about this special relationship at every moment. I, yeah, I'm, I'm that's guessing right. that's part yeah, of it. Yeah. Can we talk about these emerging technologies in, in nuclear or new nuclear just for a moment? I, you know, I know that's not perhaps directly relevant to your business, but maybe it is. I just wanted to, so you talked about oil and drilling technology. What is it about that technology? Uh, so you said vertical drilling. When was vertical drilling actually discovered and to what extent is your company depending on further improvements in vertical drilling or, or any other drilling technology? Is, is that really a, a part of where you continuously have to innovate or is that basically you're taking an existing technology and basically and, and applying it to a specific use case? Which, which one is it? Yeah, so we're really taking a very mature existing technology, um, which is directional drilling, horizontal drilling, um, and applying it to something new, which is nuclear waste disposal. Um, we, in most cases, we don't expect to be doing anything that is highly unusual. Now, the diameter of our holes is slightly bigger than your standard 
oil and gas type of hole. So we're, we're looking at 18 inches as opposed to eight inches, for example. Um, but this is something that is common enough and our partners are confident that this is not really stretching um, the realm of capabilities that we have to do today. So no additional development work is required on that side. So, so if the drilling technology is fairly established, uh, what are some of the other technology areas where you do have to innovate? Uh, just to, to, to take you for a while, and then I have some questions about some of the other emerging technologies in the nuclear space. Maybe you can just kind of line, line it out for me. What, what is happening in the technology space overall in, in, in nuclear, but you know, obviously related to, to what's going to affect you as a waste business? Yeah, sure. So um, first of all, in terms of the innovations that we're looking at, um, and we we really do have quite a lot of them. So we have eight patents that have already issued, and we have another 30 or so that are pending in, in one stage or another. Um, and these are on things um, as as fundamental as using direction, directional drilling um, in or under um impermeable rock formations for the disposal of nuclear waste, uh, to the design of the canister to make sure that it can be an engineered barrier for a significant amount of time, um, completely redundant to the geologic barriers that are also there. Um, also, the shape of the hole is important. So if you've, if you've looked at our logo, you may notice that it's not actually perfectly horizontal. There is a slight upward tilt to the horizontal section. Um, we think that that's actually important um, in terms of showing that we can meet the regulatory requirements, providing an additional layer of safety. It means that anything that might get out of the horizontal section um, and, and move upwards would move up to the dead end portion of the hole rather than migrating back to the vertical shaft. Um, uh, just as you're telling me this story, deep isolation, is that a metaphor or do you truly mean isolation in any sort of traditional sense of isolation? So um, I mentioned earlier that the consensus is that what's needed for nuclear waste is deep geologic isolation. So we call ourselves deep isolation really in the sense of, um, uh, of, of what is necessary for nuclear waste. Isolation implies cooling, but there's no cooling involved. That's correct. Uh, there's no cooling needed. It never gets hot enough to, to need uh, additional cooling. What about some of the other technologies adjacent to what you're doing in the space? I'm just thinking of, you know, in the general nuclear space, right, there's all these new types of reactors. I believe they're now on uh, Gen, or Gen 4 is one of the new types of reactors. There's the small modular approach for reactors. Then there's all these other newer ones, you know, the molten salt reactors, and 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 then let's uh, e even tackle fusion and 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 all all these other yeah. issues. Will will all these new types of reactors generate roughly um, at the end of the day that at the macro level you're predicting the same amount of of waste overall, or or is it possible that any of these new approaches, if they suddenly shut down the old reactors and started any of these new ones, that um, the waste problem would be significantly reduced and you would be with, without that kind of a market? Or, or is this not, am I just making that problem up? 
No, no, that's correct. I think most most um, fourth generation reactors, um, or many fourth generation reactors, would be able to significantly reduce the volume of the waste. Um, I also think it's important to mention that the volume of waste, even for the current generation of reactors, is not particularly high. I mean, nuclear waste is remarkably dense. So reducing the volume is potentially helpful, um, but it's not really the biggest problem um, that we face. when it There's going to be waste no there, matter what is what you're waste. saying. That's correct. And, and that waste, uh, would you say, so... What's been done to it today isn't a problem of the accumulation per se of the waste, which obviously is is also is an issue, right? It's, but yeah. but it is the uh, the safety and containment confidence that you have around whatever waste is generated. Is that what you're telling me? So it it is the confidence level that you now can provide, regardless of the amount of waste. You you have to have a million year time frame for your waste. And that's what you're guaranteeing, as opposed to just saying, um, you know, we can handle the the amounts of the of the waste. Yeah. So if you look at where waste is today, most of it is in temporary or interim storage. So this is something that is safe um, for twenty forty years potentially, um, potentially renewable for another 20 to 40 years. Um, but nobody thinks that, that where it is right now is a good solution for a million years. So May I just ask, how yeah. was that ever approved? Because this is an area of so many government regulations and approvals. I guess it was a trade-off. Did someone you know, in the 60s just decide that they were going to gamble, the technology was going to evolve, and they said, well, we project that 30 years into the future, the Millers will come along and they're going to deal with this. <laughs> well, you have to remember that the idea back then was that there was going to be a mind repository. So there, there, there have been plans in many places, including the United States, for a mind repository in the United States that is to be Yucca Mountain. Um, and so the idea was that we wouldn't really even need temporary storage. The, the, the waste could stay in the cooling pools until it would be taken by the Department of Energy and, and, and brought to Yucca Mountain for disposal. Um, that was supposed to happen in 1998. Um, obviously, it didn't. So, um, so interim storage um, became the solution because there was no other place for it to go. So as the Why did this not happen up, in 1998? What was it that failed in 1998? Was it the budget in Congress for completing the project? Was it the stakeholders we were talking about who just shut down uh, the project? I, I'm not familiar with what happened in 98 or, or that deadline that was kind of passed. Yeah, it's it's hard to pin down any one single reason. Um, it was really all of the above. Um, it did run into technical challenges that were more difficult than anticipated. Um, Yucca Mountain has some particular challenges in that it is above the water table. So anything that did leak could potentially get into the water table. Um, that meant that they had to take extra careful cautions when it comes to the engineering barriers because the geologic barriers um, were not sufficient. Um, yeah. But it was also very 
political. Um, you know, I think that the um, people of Nevada, many of the people of Nevada decided that they didn't want their state, which is a non-nuclear state, to be the nuclear waste dump for, for the country. Um, there were objections to transportation, um, transportation from all around the country um, in order to get it to Yucca Mountain in Nevada. Um, so really, there were, there were so many reasons that it, it, it didn't happen by 1998. It still is officially on the books, so it hasn't officially been canceled, um, even though um, the last couple administrations, neither of them have been actively moving towards uh, opening Yucca Mountain. So nuclear is such an infrastructure technology, but I have understood just loosely that many of the technologies that I talk about on, on, you know, on this podcast more on a daily basis, the drones, uh, augmented reality, blockchain, virtual reality, there is a connection in, you know, with nuclear eventually with some of these more newer technologies. Where do you see that some of those, and AI probably as well, where do you see that some of those technologies can become helpful? Is it, I mean, what, what are the use cases of those? Is it in, in terms of mapping these stakeholders? Is it in modeling some of the very advanced uh, computational problems that you might be dealing with in order to have a million year time scale or w- where would these technologies come into bear if 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 anywhere at all yeah i think modeling um i think monitoring is another important one um one of the concerns with nuclear waste um has been um what happens if a terrorist were were to be able to to get hold of it um so monitoring and remote monitoring i think is important um you mentioned modeling that is also very important um as is modeling so there's technical modeling but there's also i think consensus building and how do you really understand um, the, I mean, there's so many stakeholders when it comes to something like nuclear waste and how much can you learn? Um, so, so again, going back to the roots that I was talking about before, you're not just pushing a technology on people, you're actually listening to right. them and trying to design yeah. something that responds to their needs. Um, I think there's also technology that can be helpful with that. Don't know if you or your father have particular opinions about this, but uh, this always comes up in discussions about nuclear. And since I wanted to have kind of a, a blanket discussion about lots of things nuclear, cold fusion, right? So after the March 23, 1989 room temperature announcement of cold fusion becoming uh, possible, right? The researchers announced that they had done an experiment. A lot of noise happened around that. They, people were trying to replicate this experiment. So the question is, you know, is it dead or, or alive? Very recently, you know, Yetming Chiang at MIT here, uh, who I have, uh, uh, you know, gotten to know, actually revealed that they have been doing some secret experimentation with Google on on very, very sort of peripheral uh, elements surrounding cold fusion. So it turns out this entire area isn't entirely dead. Is cold fusion relevant? do you think uh, to this discussion of waste? Does it have anything to do with the waste discussion? I haven't really uh, looked in, into the implications if, if one were to succeed with cold fusion, but I, it would seem to me that the, you know, in, in addition to generating perhaps more energy quicker, there is also a, it's a very, very different process. So the, the waste would be completely 
different. I mean, it's just not the same technology at all. Did, do you, have you guys considered this technology um, as useful in this discussion or is it very peripheral to what, what you and your father are, are, are doing? Yeah, we, we certainly haven't um, been involved in, in any discussion of, of, about fusion. I think that the issue is really there, there's two different types of problems, really. There's the historical waste. So there's the waste that was generated previously and just needs to get dealt with. And whether or not there's going to be a future for fusion or for fourth generation nuclear or for any nuclear, we just need right. to deal with that problem. Um, as we look forward, I think... Uh, one second though. I want to say, so what you're saying is, even just the legacy, and we can talk about which countries that have this legacy waste in, in a second, but even just the legacy waste has to be dealt with. So you're saying, let's just say tomorrow that this was all working and everyone agreed we now have a safer and better nuclear energy. The amount of fuel that's even been generated thus far is a big enough problem that it actually is, is a market. Yes, that's correct. So that, that's the $500 billion problem. This is the accumulation of past right. waste. Now, right. obviously, the responsible thing to do is to think about waste before you generate it. So going forward, yes. whether it's with fourth generation nuclear or whether it's for fusion or whether it's for whatever new technology you, 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 you're developing, um, I think the important lesson that we have learned, and I do think that most people have learned this, is that we need to think about that waste and how we're going to dispose of that waste before it's generated for the future. So the US, the UK, and then a lot of other European countries, Germany, France, uh, and then Russia, and then China and India, did I forget any big nuclear actors, existing countries that have nuclear technology? Because it's actually limited to only a few countries that where, where they have existing ma you know masses of, of, of nuclear fuel there are reactors other places but those countries I mentioned unless I have forgotten some are where the bulk of the fuel uh, and the waste was generated historically yeah um, I mean you're right there's a lot in uh, North America and in um, in Europe there's also a lot in Asia so I don't think I heard you say China Japan um, I said Korea. China and India uh, and Japan obviously uh, was missing on my list, but would you say that, um, I guess this was my question with these new technologies, um, where reactors become smaller, surely the entire supply chain becomes very different. How are, are you guys entering that debate? Cause you pointed out that, you know, transporting everything through a central hub it's going to be difficult. Is there a much easier way to distribute this? So, you know, in your vision of how this is going to work, can you drill holes locally? Is that the idea? So wherever some country has put their reactor, they just drill down wherever they are and can get to a sedimentary foundation that you trust. And then you, you depose of it right there. Or are you still going to have to scavenge the earth for uh, suitable locations for your technology? Yeah, so great question. That's something that we're actually looking at right now. So we do um, have a contract with the Electric Power Research Institute in the United States that is thinking about these issues right now. So for a fourth generation nuclear power plant, can you 
site the reactor at the same place that you're potentially going to dispose of the waste. I mean, so that would seem like a dream solution, right? <laughs> I mean, I, th I think it's the responsible way of dealing with it. You want to know from day one what you're going to need throughout the entire life cycle um, of the reactor. You said somewhere in your marketing, I think, that you have sophisticated stakeholder engagement skills uh, as part of, you know, I'm, and I'm assuming you're talking about what you have learned about this, but are there also pr ways that you intend to engage these stakeholders that you have thought about already? Uh, because even if, let's say your technology is chosen by, you know, by a lot of people, uh, by a lot of governments or, or whoever is decision maker, how do you prove to stakeholders that this is safe? And what is your approach to doing so? Yeah, no, I think that's a fundamentally, the most fundamental question. Um, one of the things that, that we're doing, um, and we've been doing for a long time. So as a company, we're, we're only about four years old. We've only had a website for two of those years. So we were really sort of in technical due diligence for the first couple of those years. But before we even had a website, we reached out to every major environmental group in the United States that has a perspective on nuclear waste. And we had a conversation with all of those that responded to our outreach, which was not all of them, unfortunately. Um, and we did a lot of listening and we listened to the sorts of things that people are concerned about. And what is it that we can respond to? Are there things that we can incorporate into our plans? Are there things that we can do differently? Um, we've actually changed some of what we're doing based on some of that feedback um, that we've received. Um, so, for example, having full redundancy between the geologic and the engineered barriers is something that initially we weren't sure we needed, um, but yeah. the feedback was you want full redundancy. Um, we've also formally um, said publicly that we will adhere to standards that are stricter than the Nuclear Regulatory Commission requires. Um, and, and this is something we have committed to, and it's something that we will continue to, to commit to. So we do a lot of listening. Um, we incorporate good suggestions when, when they are the right suggestions. And we continue to do this. So we, we recently just published um, a uh, initial safety calculations um, for a deep isolation repository um, in a shale formation. Um, and we've been having a very broad public consultation. So we, we, we put it through peer review. So it has been published as a peer reviewed paper. Um, we also, in addition to that, reached out to a number of experts that we had identified or other people had identified as um, being able to provide meaningful input and feedback on the report. In addition to that, we also have welcomed uh, input from the public. So we had a series of webinars in which uh, were open to absolutely anybody. Um, and we have responded to each and every one of the questions that we received. Now, 
whether our questions are going to be sufficient, we don't know. So that'll be a next stage. This is really never ending. You have to keep the consultation going. Um, but it is something that we are completely committed to. We, we will keep this conversation going. I think that um, governments historically, they don't like to begin those conversations until they're pretty far along. Um, we right. think that's a mistake. But before we even get to the point of considering a specific location, um, we want to know that community um, and the environmental groups who, who care about that community and have identified this as something that uh, the community wants. This is not something we want to push on anybody who, who has not actively chosen it for themselves. You know, one technology that I forgot when we were talking about these different technology approaches is, and, and I'm imagining that if people knew more, they would be uh, more on this debate. But the choice of uranium was kind of an unfortunate one for, for many reasons, right? I mean, it, it does generate all of this waste. Um, what about thorium? Have, uh, have you um, considered what that would do? Uh, man, many would say that that's a better energy source from a waste perspective. It definitely has a shorter half-life. And uh, its uh, nuclear waste would stay only re radioactive for 500 years instead of 10,000. So in terms of futuristic perspectives, that does change the entire time scale. Uh, and there's also less of it, although you tell me it's not the mass that is the problem. So maybe that's not such an important uh, consideration, but there's somewhere between a thousand and 10,000 times less waste with a thorium re uh, reaction uh, than with a uranium reaction. Do you have any idea why the world's powers to be, you know, at be got on board with uranium and never considered or, or could they switch to other means of generating uh, the nuclear reaction? Yeah, it's a no, big question. I, I can't really comment on the various different types of reactors. Um, all I can say is that we are working with with groups um, that use many different types of fuel, and we expect to be able to help them with their waste when it comes time for that. Got it. Got it. So the U.S. Department of Energy definitely seems to be interested in building advanced new nuclear uh, technology and they have uh, fairly recently gotten new leadership have you are you in touch with with them about uh, what they're doing um, yeah we, we've been in touch with the Department of Energy yes so there is this lady Rita Baranwal she's an MIT grad actually who heads up the Office of Nuclear Energy uh, she's an assistant uh, secretary I think uh, you know in the Office of Nuclear Energy so there are there's new people coming into the the leadership in the US and it may become a field that that is more active is that also the sense you're getting that uh, the kind of the glacial pace of this industry is if not coming to an end, that there certainly is a lot of activity now. I, I've even heard venture capitalists really start, I mean, apart from Bill Gates obviously has invested in, in many uh, and famously in Terra Power and, and a few others, but uh, there is a little bit of activity now in this space. Yeah, I think that um, there has been a lot of activity in this space, in, in particular for, for new types of nuclear power generation um, in the United States. There is There has been a lot of movement there. There's been um, some legislation that has passed. Um, so there has been movement. 
I think that unfortunately, we haven't seen that same sort of movement on the nuclear waste side yet. Um, and I think there is some catch up that is needed. Um, you know, again, just coming back, I think there is increasing recognition that if we are going to move forward with any sort of nuclear power, um, we do need to think about the nuclear waste problem. Um, and unfortunately, there hasn't been um, as much creativity on, on that side. Well, if we're putting our environmentalist hats on, I also was a, a, a young environmentalist, um, and I hope I'm now an aging environmentalist. But the point being that in the energy industry overall, right, I mean, energy innovation was always taking the leader seat. So the sustainability discussion and the waste discussions for other energy forms also took much longer. But now I would say, and I've talked to some VCs about this, in the sustainability field, any kind of more traditional waste you know, is now viewed as an, not an end product, but, you know, there's a whole life cycle perspective. Why has that awareness taken so long for nuclear? Is it because people are just assuming this thing is just a big problem and we can't really use the end product and, and no one has come up with a way to actually use the waste. So it's just about placing it, which is, you know, I don't know, viewed as a boring problem. Um, and, and sort of building on that, you know, is there, any way that any of this nuclear waste could be put to use uh, before a million years. <laughs> so in other words, I mean, is there not any possibility to extract other things or do anything at all apart from just sequestering it and then and, and putting it away? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple, couple of things I'll respond to in that. Um, one is can nuclear waste potentially be useful? Um, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, there, there are um, even today um, designs and plans for reactors that would be able to use nuclear waste. Um, would they uh, be so able then my question would be, can you dig it out of your wells? Yes, exactly. So that, that is one of the reasons why it is required to be retrievable. So that is a requirement. It does need to be retrievable for up to 50 years. Um, that said, I think it is not very likely that any future generation of nuclear power would be able to use all of the waste that we have today. We have a lot of it. So I think at most it would use a very small fraction of the amount that has already been generated. Um, the, the other issue that I wanted to, to touch on briefly um, is why there hasn't been much innovation in, in, in nuclear waste. And I think that that's a really important question. Um, I'm not sure why there hasn't been more innovation in nuclear waste, but I do think that particularly in the United States, other countries haven't been quite as bad. But the solution for, for nuclear waste in the United States was decided. It was decided in 1987. It was put into law. The Nuclear Waste Policy Act and its amendments say that it will go to Yucca Mountain. Um, the fact that Yucca Mountain ran into significant trouble, the fact that it doesn't exist as an operating facility today, um, you know, more than 20 years after it was supposed to start taking fuel, doesn't change the law. Well, that begs the question of uh, the importance of options and, and putting, putting several solutions on the table. It's a little unusual even in government to just go for one solution, but I guess these things are so expensive that it yeah. feels like they were, they were uh, kicking a can down the road, I guess, um, on, on that. 
Liz, this is a complicated area. Even if you're just looking at nuclear waste and then considering all these other surrounding factors that could impact the nuclear waste market and stakeholders, like you pointed out, and, and governments and regulatory authorities, it's a landscape that could overwhelm many startup founders. So that could be one explanation. How do you stay fresh in this area? How do you stay up to date? How do you make sure that you are tracking and tracing? You know, what do you read? What do you listen to? Um, who do you listen to? If someone wanted to track this field and, and perhaps even contribute uh, to the innovation and, and build a startup focus on, on waste, which I'm assuming you would welcome apart from a little bit of competition, but it could be that there are adjacencies and, and, and collaborations. Uh, so, I, so I guess it has both positive and negative if there were to be a, a bigger space for, for startups in nuclear waste. How does one get into the field? How does one track the field? Yeah, there's a lot of industry publications that are out there. Um, one of my favorites um, is is Rad Waste Solutions, which is ridiculously geeky, um, but I I love it. Read it cover to cover. Um, there, beyond Radways. Rad Waste, so for for Rad Waste Solutions, yes. Um, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that the industry perspective is not the only perspective. And there are a lot of voices out there that are underrepresented when it comes to discussion of nuclear waste. Um, we've actually just recently put together our own podcast that we call Nuclear Waste, The Whole Story, in which we try and balance industry perspective with voices from outside of industry, environmentalists, um, stakeholder groups, um, and other people who um, who may not always be part of the story. Um, so that's another potential resource for, for people who are interested in nuclear waste. So then, then my final question would be, I'd like to know this uh, because I, I shared that I was actually worried about nuclear energy and, and the fallout when I was a kid. Should my kids be worried about nuclear waste or have the Millers solved the problem for us? Well, we haven't solved the problem yet. Um, I like to think that we're getting there, um, that we are starting to change the conversation. I think we've already changed the conversation in a very significant way. Um, we did two things that people told us when we started the company were impossible. Um, the first was do a demonstration with the full support of the community where we did the demonstration um, and uh, a number of environmental groups. We did that just over a year ago. Um, and the second was actually get our first contracts um, to actually look at you know, disposing of nuclear waste. Um, we have a lot more work to do. We, we need to go from thinking about how we will dispose of the waste to showing how we will dispose of the waste and then actually disposing of the waste. So I would definitely not say we've done it yet. Um, and we really need, a, we, we need support from, from a number of different groups. This is a big tent and we, we need a lot of people pulling in the same direction in order to get this done. What are the timelines, just briefly, uh, to get this done? 
Or what are we looking at? I mean, you, 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 the end point is a million years, but surely you're not going to sit there and scratch your heads for a hundred years to get this no, done. No, of how, course. How, what are the timelines? Yeah, timelines really vary a lot. Um, so I think in your average location, we're probably looking at 10 to 20 years. Um, there are locations that need it faster. And as a startup company, that's where we hope to get the most um, traction. We need to move quickly. Um, we're looking at first locations where we could begin disposing of waste in the next five years. Five years is less than a million years. I'm, <laughs> I'm confident you'll get there. Uh, Liz, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Tron. This was fantastic. You have just listened to episode 10 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arnevenheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of nuclear waste. Our guest was Elizabeth Miller, CEO and co-founder of Deep Isolation, the nuclear waste disposal startup. My takeaway is that nuclear indeed is a futuristic topic, given that Deep Isolation has a one million year time horizon on the efficacy of their technology. It is also interesting that drilling technology can be deployed to place canisters of nuclear waste in deep horizontal drill holes, utilizing stable rock formations as a protective barrier. What I like is that the solution is decentralized and avoids the transportation of nuclear waste. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption. <laughs>